Hey, look at you. Florist by day, student by night, student by day, nurse by night. Since 1998, Penn State World Campus has led the charge in online education, offering access to more than 175 in-demand programs taught by our expert faculty. We offer flexible schedules, scholarships, and tuition plans to help you reach your educational goals online. Penn State World Campus delivers on your time. Click the ad or visit worldcampus.psu.edu to learn more. That's worldcampus.psu.edu to learn more. Chapter 1, Wayfair welcomes you to the Waberhood. Our hero, Titus Burgess, ambled down the stylish street of an enchanting utopia. A woman waved from a chic lounger. Welcome to the Waberhood, she said, where Wayfair helps everyone create a home they love. Titus stared in awe. Bohemian Boulevard, Trendsetter Terrace, Mid-Century Circle. Titus, hmm? you're reading the Wayfair catalog. Oh, you'll love Chapter 2. Wayfair's fast and free shipping saves a potluck. Wayfair, every style, every home. Someplace underneath. Remember, have you ever been in the situation? I mean, I think most of us have been in the situation where you have a lot of strong goals, you want to reach for the sky, you are driven, and so you do a couple things, and then all of a sudden you wake up and you're in the middle of a child trafficking ring, and you're like, well, "How did I get here?" All the time, yeah, all the time. And they're like, you know, little kids. So I'm like, "Oh man, I want to protect these kids," but but it's kind of you know what? It's a little late for that, and, yeah. and uh, whoops. I don't know how it just happens, you know, it's just a quick old one day you're just partying on boats with celebrities. And then the next you've got a bunch of kids locked in a room. I know. And you want to keep the boat partying happening and the money and the jewels. How are you going to live without the jewels after you have jewels? I mean, you can't take those away once you're used to a certain lifestyle. Mm -hmm. Yep. Sometimes kids got to fucking deal with it. Yeah. And we've all had hard childhoods. I know, right? Yeah. So it's not technically your fault if you had a weird childhood. Yeah. You know, sometimes how our parents raised us, we're not in the most loving ways. So you don't know how to reciprocate that love. No, exactly. And uh, this is what this show is all about is making excuses for criminals. No, Mm. it's not. But I do like to find out Oh, what happened in my childhood? <laughs> yeah, why people behave a certain way. You don't just yeah. like wake up and then lock children in cages as a normal human being. No, no. There's usually at least one or two events that happen in between somewhere. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I, you were talking about some, you have a moon ritual. Is this how you prevent yourself from doing child? Uh, is it moon rituals instead of child rituals? Mm, yes. I mean, always go for moon rituals instead of child rituals. That's usually a better go. Yeah. Uh, Well, the other night I was feeling kind of stressed and um, I just lit a couple candles and I laid outside and I looked at the moon and I breathed deep and I really contemplated on my Mm. life and the universe. I listened to some cool music. I stretched my body out and I was like, this feels like a weird feminine ritual. And then boom, started my period. Absolutely. That's the best. Stretching your body out. I love, I'll stare into the sky for um, a a really uncomfortable amount of time for other people who are observing me probably. Yeah, they're like, what's she doing over there? I just love it. And it is. We are cycled by the moon and by the tides. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. And if humans are 90% water, correct? Something? That's a fact I heard somewhere. Yeah, somewhere in there. It could be fake news, but, you know, skin's got a lot of water in it. Yeah. I like drinking. I got some water beside me right now. And if the moon controls the tides, then the moon would control the water in your body. That's absolutely true. Ah, that's scary. Get it out. Get it out of me. Get the water out of me. (laughs) I'm working on that with all the caffeine I'm drinking currently. Um, Yeah, so I love that. I love that. And maybe if Ghislaine had been given these tools as a younger woman, uh, she wouldn't have ended up in a prison cell. No. But there's there she is. There she sits now. So, yeah, I actually I've been working on this show for so long that when I started this topic, Glenn was still actually missing. We are, hello, someplace underneath. I'm Natalie Jean. I'm Amber Nelson. And we are doing a first part in a series on the Ghislaine Maxwell lady. Fascinating lady. 
Yes, uh, super fascinating uh, because even though she has been caught, she's not technically missing anymore. I really, that will probably happen sometimes on the show, which usually is a good thing. You want these people to not be missing anymore. I'm not like bummed about it. Yeah. Oh man, they found that lady in the forest. My Ugh. podcast. But oh my, no. <laughs> but my stories. If the story itself is really uh, mysterious and interesting and I think we can learn something from it and hear some weird shit, I'm still going to want to talk about it. And I really decided that I wanted to continue to talk about Ghislaine because she was a person who managed to essentially be missing for... I don't know, what was that, like eight, nine months? Yeah, she had the money to go missing. She did, which is, <laughs> spoiler alert, that's mostly how people go missing is having a bunch of money. Yeah, I mean, I guess I could go missing, but like, you know, if I were to get on like a bus, I, I would probably have to get on a bus. It's hard to not have a paper trail if you're, um, well, you have to either be so poor that you're like hopping trains or you're so rich that you don't have to give people your passport to get on a plane. Yeah, you just pay somebody in a private jet. Yes, exactly. Uh, so there's really, yeah, super rich, super poor. Those are your two options if you want to get away f- with the crime. <laughs> and lately, I've just like, you know, on these little rituals I do, staring at the moon, staring at myself. I think a lot of quarantine has helped me be like, oh, my childhood, um, I am acting these ways because this happened in my childhood. Whereas before, you know, I was always like, oh, childhood, that's just a thing I don't remember. That's like the dark past that yeah. I closed the door. yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Absolutely. This yeah. is this is a time of reflection in the, our lives, uh, forced reflection. Absolutely. And a thing I discovered is like, you know, you have this monster behind the door and then you lock the door, but the monster wants to come find you. Mm-hmm. And he's still there. He's still there. You know, just locking the door won't send that monster away, Mm-mm. but you're just going to have to have stronger and stronger chains to hold the monster back. Exactly. He's getting stronger in that room. Absolutely. You left him with a bunch of monster feed that you didn't realize that you did. But you did. And that is absolutely the case. I definitely have experienced waking up back into my childhood in my adult life. And it's not pretty. No. But, and uh, the stronger and stronger chains is usually like drug use, alcohol abuse. You yep. know, it starts with a couple glasses of wine and it ends up with like six bottles a night just to keep, <laughs> <laughs> just to keep the monsters at bay. Oh, no, that's me. <laughs> uh, yeah, quarantine hasn't been good for my my alcohol intake. I will say that. But really? I'm drinking less, actually. But I think it's because I was a bartender in the old world. Yeah, in the, back yeah. in the old place that we yeah. were. Yeah, I'm just drinking like I would say one more glass of wine a night. Not that I'm drinking every night, but the nights I drink, I'm now up to like three glasses instead of maybe one. Oh, I drank a whole bottle of white wine last night. Yeah. No, I mean, I've done it as well. These are the times we're in. Um, (laughs) But so, yeah, this is one of those cases where I think Ghislaine never really opened the closet up on what was going on in her life. Um, Probably quite a bit different than how you and I experienced childhood. And she was what we would consider one of the privileged few. But that doesn't mean you can't go through a bunch of pretty bad stuff that you just decide to ignore. Oh, yeah. Wealthy people have monsters, too. And in fact, like... You know, I, I don't know if I'm if I'm saying this correctly, but I'm almost glad I'm not a woman that comes from pure wealth because Same-sies. if you don't act a certain way, often they're very cold to their children mm-hmm. and they will cut you off. Yeah. And if you don't behave a certain way, uh, you will just straight up get lobotomized or cut off. It's true. Abused. And I hate the term that rich, because it's always rich people who say this, money doesn't buy you happiness. It's always somebody who's like, on a jet ski wearing like a diamond necklace like going buy poor people just don't worry about us having money it doesn't buy you happiness no um yeah so it doesn't really of course but those people have also never not had health care or like a bed yeah so money can buy comfort and happiness to an extent but once you get past a certain point nobody needs a, a certain amount after a certain amount of money you don't like, you know, if you don't need billions of dollars. Nobody does. No. And when that happens, it makes the family unit really twisted and usually there's a lot of psychological games. And this, Glenn's life was no different, for sure. Um, I don't know if you knew about her family at all before this, but whenever I first knew of her as a human being was whenever all the Jeffrey stuff started coming out. Yeah, I had no idea who she was. No. And I had never heard about her family who apparently is notorious so that is something that i immediately got caught in a spiral of yeah but yeah my everyone was focusing on jeffrey and 
for me, when I saw this woman with him, my I was immediately drawn to her, like, who is this bitch? Yeah, what kind of mind games is she in? Is she playing? What's going on? Yeah, is this one of his captives? Do I hate this woman or do I feel sad for this woman? And it became pretty clear pretty quickly that she was much more of an accomplice than a victim Mm. of his. And it it also proves my theory that, like, the Forbes wealthiest people in the world aren't really the wealthiest people in the world. They're just the people that want to be known. There is definitely, I think, a contingent of people who are better at telling people they're rich than actually having money. And it, it is so much about, you know, the public perception of a person is almost more important than how much money you have. Honestly, if you can convince people that you have a bunch of money, it can get you pretty far. When you said that, do you mean um, like the richest people They're like are spies. hiding? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, they're spies. Totally. They're drug kings. Um, they're some diplomats. They don't want to be seen. They yeah. don't want to be found. They hide. Yeah, uh, they do. And technically, that's probably pretty smart. I, I think it's probably smart to hide that you're really rich because people will try to kill you. I was researching the most expensive hotel rooms in the world, and the most expensive hotel room isn't some, like, penthouse in Dubai. It is a fortress that is, you can't even, like, fire a cannon through it. It's the, the, the biggest thing, the biggest selling point was, um, oh, you can't fire guns through it. it you'll, you can survive a nuclear fallout. Yes. And that's the wealthiest yeah. hotel room in the world. So obviously, like, you're hiding something. And these aren't people that are like, oh, they made a lot of money, you know, selling tidbits on, you know, selling stuff on Etsy stores. They're selling human beings. They're selling guns. Yeah. 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 And and that was also as soon as I started learning about Ghislaine's family, I was immediately going, putting my little uh, armchair psychiatrist cap on going, was this her father? Was her father doing this as well? And um, turns out not that far off from the truth. Yeah. So (laughs) shocking. So like we said, we she pretty much seems to be more so a collaborator than a victim of Jeffrey's. So as soon as we see that she's an accomplice, it, it's one of those things that morbidly fascinates me because if it's a sex criminal that has a woman with him, more often than not, it's because the woman is there to have the illusion of being a safe spot to people which usually sex traffickers and i've just been finding this out they incorporate women a lot of women Mm -hmm. um, get people in the game because young girls are like oh well she's an older woman it's okay i can trust her and then boom you're on an island somewhere getting you know getting hard different ways uncompromised Yes. yes so that to me is one of the purest forms of evil there is and you know i could see in in the, our modern year of 2021 that it's maybe a little bit sexist to say like I hold women to a standard that I I probably subconsciously hold them higher than men in a lot of ways morally and that sucks like I shouldn't be thinking that but I can't help it because probably my own experiences in my life growing up it was usually uh, abuse so with women I always wanted to be able to trust them yeah. and so this kind of thing makes me fucking enraged um yeah <laughs> basically because you can't trust nobody no nah. uh, and it's just it's just such a betrayal um it's such a betrayal because again they're there to be this figure of um well it can't be it i feel a little uncomfortable but it can't be that bad because this lady's here and she's nice and she doesn't have a big scary penis you know but she was probably abused herself well and yeah, and, and sometimes it is that direct, well, I was sex trafficked and then I become a sex trafficker and she's not quite that simple. It's a little more complex. And so I wanted to know more about where this vile woman came from and uh, how evil she really was and, and how she came to be that way. So I wanted to start you off with a little quote by this delightful woman as she describes to her friend, Christina Oxenberg, the many children who she molested and trafficked. She said to her friend, they're nothing, these girls. They're trash. Mm. So this is deep into the game she's already, she has turned herself into this person. And I imagine that these two women were sitting in this beautiful sitting room where they're lounging on settees, holding champagne glasses, and they're talking about these children, these poor, impoverished children 
who she's handing over to adult men. It's just so repulsive and and, and so cartoonish in, in the evil levels, but it really was what she... Her friend said she directly said this about those girls. Yeah. Well, she probably has to say that for her own brain. Because yes. if you start thinking, no, they're human beings, then you start thinking, oh, what I'm doing is bad. And you can't think that. Yeah. You have to keep the game going. I agree. And in this, that quote came from a little bit later on in her life. And I do think it was a, a point of no return for her at some point where she was like, I have to deem myself of a different species than them. And this is how I can justify this behavior. But there's all kinds of other stuff that happened before that. Yes. So her family was pretty dark a lot of the time. In fact, her life itself began with a massive tragedy within her own family, which shadowed her entire childhood. Before I get into that, I wanted to talk about her father. A spy. Yeah, because he is a fascinating creature and also very likely has a lot to do with the way Ghislaine turned out. I didn't know fuck all about him. Uh, have you had you ever heard of Robert Maxwell before this? I heard he was a spy and that he was like, but it was on some conspiracy website. And yeah. who knows what you can trust on the Internet? But he was like an Israeli spy. Yeah. And I was like, I don't know if I can trust that. But then my again, I put my thinking cap on and I was like, a spy is someone who is constantly lying, withholding information. Um, anything they tell you is I want you to know this for a reason. Yeah. So, of course, if you raise someone like that, they're going to be deceitful. Yeah. And he he. Was He was a spy and he was a lot of things. Um, he was actually apparently kind of a big deal. And I think a lot of the reason we don't know as much about him is because he died when we were both very young. And he, he was more of somebody who came up through the 70s and 80s. Mm. But basically, the long and short of him, there was a lot of twists and turns throughout his life. But he eventually became a media newspaper magnate. And he was known probably a little bit more through Europe. He owned a lot of British newspapers, but he eventually did come to own the New York Daily News. So he did transfer over into the States ultimately. And it's actually something that Ghislaine aided him with. But that was towards the end of his career. Yeah. But yeah, he did end up owning a lot of the media, um, a lot of newspapers. And I think that part of that had to do with where he came from. But yes, he was really powerful in controlling... Thoughts. Narrative. Narrative. Yeah. So Robert Maxwell was born Abraham Lieb Ludwig on June 10, 1923, in the village of Slatinsky Dole. <laughs> Perfect. Uh, which is in the area that at the time was Czechoslovakia and is now considered an area of Ukraine. There's so much about Eastern Europe that it's like, I, I, I was never taught in school. I don't know. Yeah. It's confusing and it's chaotic, especially around the time of, you know, World War yeah. One and Two. And also around that time, like people had to be kind of quiet about their life, where they came from. I think that was called the silent generation. I think that is the silent generation. Yeah. So, yeah, they they grew up in this area. And just a, a few years before Robert's birth, his family name had actually been Hoch. I looked that up. That's how you say that. Hoch. Hoch. I mean, that just sounds like like you can always interpret someone's speech as their personality. And that's such sort of like guttural. It, mm -hmm. it just sounds cold. It sounds like you're protecting yourself. Well, <laughs> screaming. Yeah, it is cold. It came a couple decades before from the Germans. See, Robert's family was Jewish. And the Germans, even before Robert was born in the 20s, the Germans were coming around to count the Jews because they just love counting Jewish people, apparently. Und du drei. Yeah. That's why. So they've been doing that for a long time. Um and the Germans who came around couldn't communicate appropriately with his family and couldn't figure out how to spell their last name. So they just changed their last name to Hulk, which is the German word for tall, hmm. um, because the men of their family were tall men. Hmm. So we don't really know what their last name was before that. But Again, his, already secretive. Yeah. So the Germans changed their last name to Hulk, and then it, he became a Ludwig. Their family had changed over to Ludwig by the time he was born. And, you know, like a lot of us think of the persecution of the Jews in re with relation to the Nazi Germany, but it came from much farther back than that. And when Maxwell was born into a Jewish family during this era, it was not a safer, prosperous time for the Jews in this place. From one of the books that I've read on Robert called Robert Maxwell, Israel Super Spy, there was another blood stain on the land. 
Anti-Semitism had been unabated in an all-consuming tidal wave that crossed mountains and rivers, driven on by a terrible lust to seek out and destroy any Jew. No matter how young or old, he or she had been put to the sword or burned on a pyre. The stench of death once hung like a pall over forests and fields as the Russian Orthodox priests had chanted their refrain of kill the Christ killers and slaughtered Jews in the tens of thousands. Mm. So this was already the world in which he was coming into. Yeah, just the world you're born into of that if you were to tell people who you are, you could be killed. So of course he became a spy. Yeah. And the way that his life went from there really sort of later exemplifies his ability to shapeshift. And we are learning a lot about Ghislaine through what he's done, mostly because like on a lot of these topics, their information about these specific people are so coveted and so sheltered that we only can learn through, essentially through osmosis of these heritage things. So it's also another poor person thing. If you want to hide out, (laughs) you've got to be either very wealthy or very poor. Exactly. Yep. So wherever, however, when Robert was born, where they lived was at least a small, mostly peaceful community of Jewish people who lived in relative harmony with the neighboring Christians, able to trade goods, etc., and just kind of live and let live. Mm -hmm. They were generally closed off from society and media of the time, which some people credit to Maxwell's desire to own so much of the news later on in his life. Uh, They mostly were cut off just because it was a poor area and there was really not a lot of communication from the outside world in the 20s in this area. So Robert was the second of seven children, and they lived in extreme poverty. Now, that's another thing of uh, when someone's very wealthy and you talk to them about how they grew up, and if they grew up very poor, you better believe they were very ruthless Oh yeah, to get that way. And they're going to keep that money. Yeah. It doesn't matter how they do it. I remember talking to one of my bosses in New York, and she was quite ruthless. And I you know, discovered from the fact that she was born very poor she was so ruthless. The only woman with a window office, by the way. She said, Okay, bitch. Yeah, I know. But when 9-11 happened, she saw the Ugh. plane hit oh, and God. then turned around and kept working. See? Okay. So that's the level where yeah. you go, is this worth it in the end if I'm going to continue working as my the buildings are collapsing around me? Because what's the fucking point of anything? What's the point? But that's the level of extremism you yeah, have to have. It, it is. And, and you'll see that with Robert and his life. And, and it does get to a point where you do see the person spiraling because they've clawed and clawed and clawed, but they never stop for a second to go, what's going to bring me joy through all this? They just keep climbing until they're just at the top of a mountain and then they jump off of it at the end. Um, so stop and look around at the the fucking flowers on the it's side okay. of the mountain a little bit. You know what I'm saying? It's like, it's like the kind of people that save and save and save. And mm-hmm. I'm just like, but are you enjoying any of the savings? Yeah. And they hoard money and then they die and you they die on top of a mattress filled with, you know, thousand dollar bills. And they just live in like fly infested filth. You know, there's been a bunch of those people who just coveted all their money and never spent any of it and then just died miserable. So find them a, a medium, you know? Yeah. Hey, look at you. Florist by day, student by night, student by day, nurse by night. Since 1998, Penn State World Campus has led the charge in online education, offering access to more than 175 in-demand programs taught by our expert faculty. We offer flexible schedules, scholarships, and tuition plans to help you reach your educational goals online. Penn State World Campus delivers on your time. Click the ad or visit worldcampus.psu.edu to learn more. That's worldcampus.psu.edu to learn more. Chapter 1, Wayfair welcomes you to the Waberhood. Our hero, Titus Burgess, ambled down the stylish street of an enchanting utopia. A woman waved from a chic lounger. Welcome to the Waberhood, she said, where Wayfair helps everyone create a home they love. Titus stared in awe. Bohemian Boulevard, Trendsetter Terrace, Mid-Century Circle. Titus, hmm? you're reading the Wayfair catalog. Oh, you'll love Chapter 2. Wayfair's fast and free shipping saves a potluck. Wayfair, every style, every home. So when he was born, they gave Robert his strong biblical name Abraham to show that they wouldn't cower from threats from their beliefs. However, when they went to go register the baby within the larger society, they were advised to give him another name, uh, a different first name for safety reasons for it sounding too Jewish. So at that point, his name became Jan Abraham Ludwig. 
He grew up extremely close to his mother. She taught him how to read very young in an era when literacy was not always a given. And he eventually, he could write better than his father by the time he was 10. It's usually education. Wow, better than his father. It's usually education that kind of like helps people give them the leeway up in yeah. those extreme poverty like scenarios. Um, it's usually someone's like, oh, my mom helped me read and write or I found this yep. book. And I, yeah. And that's what he had. He had a mother who wanted more for him. Maybe she saw something specific in him over his other siblings, but she wanted him to get out. And he eventually did. He became fluent in eight languages. Uh, so whatever else he became, he definitely wasn't a dummy. You know, his mom was the first to convince him to get the fuck out of Dodge. And although it pained her, she told him he needed to disguise his Jewishness. At that point, he removed the Abraham entirely from his name and he became Jan Ludwig. It sucks, but she was doing it because she was the one in the family who kept up with the news. Uh, she had a lot of fear of this young upstart named Adolf she yeah. kept hearing about. She'd get her news a lot of time from scraps of paper she would find on the ground or in the garbage. She would read the news from just finding it wherever wow. she could. Read but, it to him and another reason why you want to own all the papers. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, it really it goes all the way back to your fucking lizard brain as a child. But uh, yeah, so she was like, man, you've got to get out of here. The the writing's on the wall, man. We're not going to, it's not going to be good. And so she was right to be worried. That part of Czech that was their little village was in the hands of the Germans by 1938 when Robert was 15, but he was already gone by that point. Wow. She had basically pushed him out on the heels of these Germans coming in and just like overtaking the town. And she probably saved his life because much of his family was murdered um, by the Nazis shortly after that. So we don't really know how he gained his endless drive and desire for power, but he really went for it. And with one outfit that his mom got him and about a month's worth of money, survival money, he left and he traveled and he wandered for wow. a, about two years. That's what people did back in the day. Like you would see, you know, 14 year olds get on a boat to America and be like, I'm here. And they would just like change their last yep. name and then run for president 10 years later. It's how they did it. I don't know. I don't really fully even after reading all of these books about him, I'm still like, but how did he? But that's just how a lot of it was done back then. And he did. He, he just was, became he he was a really tall assuming man. He had broad shoulders and black hair. And he was really ambiguous as far as uh, his background. And I mean, by saying he didn't look Jewish, I guess, mm -hmm. um, to be gross. But uh, he so but that helped him because he could have been English. He could have been French. He could have been this, that. They, it was really hard to tell. And that's probably the era of people trusting you. So they're like, oh, I trust you, sir. You remind me of my Czechoslovakian uncle. I'll yep. give you this loan. Sure. And well, for about two years, he traveled around. And then in 1940, he joined the 2nd Regiment of the Czech Legion under the name of Jan Hoch, trying to pass himself off as an Englishman. And in fact, he paid a woman to help him develop a strong English vocabulary and accent. And it worked. He eventually adopted all the correct mannerisms, etiquette, and customs to pass as a native English fellow. So he became a chameleon very early. I mean, this is, he's like 20 to 21 years old. I mean, I guess you have to, if you want to survive, yeah. it's sink or swim, baby. Yeah. So he really just turned into a different person. I don't really, so he's in this war. Okay. I don't really understand war shit. I don't know what any of it means, but he kept getting promoted until he got some kind of high rank and was transferred into an important intelligence unit in 1943. He was only 20 at the time. But he, they saw something in him and he could already speak several languages and all this. So they wanted him in this like important role. There, he changed his name again to Leslie de Mollier in agreement with his unit in case he was captured by Germans so he could hide his identity, which was already a fake identity that he had given them. But the, his war compadres didn't know that he already had a fake name. So this was a fake name on a fake name. So layers and layers. Yeah. He got promoted to sergeant and then he began calling himself Leslie Jones during that time period. That's my that's my father's name. Oh, is this your dad? Oh, my God. This is my daddy. <laughs> uh, he owes you some money, mm. but he's he he blew it all. So there isn't any. Sorry. 
But uh, yeah, there's also Leslie Jones is also a comedian. Oh, wait, my father's not Leslie Jones. Somebody in my family is Leslie Jones. My father's <laughs> Earl Nelson. My mother's the Jones. Yeah, yeah. Something. Maybe my her brother that died. Yeah, I don't know. There's a Leslie Jones in my family. There's a one one of them. So he changed his name again, uh, and as he he became an interrogator during that time, and he changed his name to Leslie Jones. It's not really clear why, but it was too chaotic during the middle of the war for anyone to question why his name was different. So everybody just started calling him that. Right before his 21st birthday, he was promoted to second lieutenant. His commanding officer suggested he have a Scottish alias. So yes, he once again changed his name, this time to Ian Robert Maxwell. And shortly after that, he shortened it to Robert Maxwell. And you probably got to be smart enough to backtrack on like all these different names all these different identities. I mean, I guess that comes from the language because if you could speak, say, like French and German, then you kind of already understand like two different cultures. Yeah. Uh, And it's crazy though for me to think about this as somebody who you just had to grow up a lot younger then because this kid's before his 22nd birthday has done all this. And I look at 22 year olds now, including myself, and I'm just like, I was a fucking idiot at 22. I couldn't have done any of this. I was still like, like running around on a college campus, like a moron. Yeah, well, we've gotten um, a little more infantile, I guess. Like even in the 70s, if you look mm-hmm. at high school photos of people in the 1970s, I'm like, that's a man. Like he has a mortgage. Yeah. He is not 17. He's already mad about paying bills. Yeah. So, you know, I don't know if it's good or bad. It's probably somewhere in between, but... Uh, So, yeah, this guy, as a recap, just so we're clear, before his 22nd birthday, Ghislaine Maxwell's father went from Abraham Lieb Ludwig to Jan Abraham Ludwig to Jan Ludwig to Jan Hoch to Leslie Dumalier to Leslie Jones to Ian Robert Maxwell to Robert Maxwell, all before his 22nd birthday and all to hide being Jewish, essentially. And also... He was at this time probably cementing his ability to be a shapeshifter and a survivor. He's a massive dickwad, and I don't want it to make this sound like he is this hero figure. He's not. He's yeah. a shitty guy. But just like why he did this. There's a lot of he overcame a lot of insane shit before. By this point, he had gone and of uh, being a kid who slept in one bed with all of his six siblings and had to share one pair of shoes with them. Mm-hmm. They would go back and forth while they were walking. They'd one person would wear the shoes for a while, and then when their other person's feet got tired or hurt, they would switch the shoes to the other person. Wow. Um, so he went from that to a decorated and respected military man in about six years. In 1944, he met Ghislaine's mom in a newly liberated Paris. She worked at some kind of business that hooked up soldiers with Parisians who wanted to, like, host them, like hang out with them and feed them, I think. When I was first reading it, it was a little skeevy to me because it sounded like they were kind of like an escort service, yeah. like for marriage. But I think that's just because my brain is damaged and I immediately am just like, is this a child trafficking ring? I think it was more along the lines of like a soldier Airbnb where people could be like, Come stay with our family and we'll feed you and we'll give you tours. Yeah, just make, treat you like a human being. Yeah, I'm sure there was also s- people having sex with the soldiers, but hopefully it was, you know, everybody wanted to. Uh, and they just wanted to have sex with some soldiers, maybe. Yeah. So that's great. Anyway, Ghislaine's mom, um, her name is Elizabeth Maynard, or was, and she was 23 when she encountered the 21-year-old Robert Maxwell. The story of their love is a little muddled because even though Elizabeth, who goes by Betty, wrote an autobiography called A Mind of My Own. My Betty's my mother's name. Oh, no. This is your family. (laughs) You're part of this legacy. Oh, no. Yeah, that's not good. Um, (laughs) Except I'm German, though. Or at least that's what they told me. Well, maybe you're not. (laughs) Okay, so she wrote this autobiography about her life. And in her book, she paints this picture of this magical whirlwind romance and although she does mention his issues throughout the years of some of his quote-unquote shortcomings she repeatedly pledges her commitment to him singing his praises saying saying they endlessly loved each other where every other account of robert maxwell states that he consistently belittled betty called her loveless greedy was after his money he had an endless line of affairs throughout their entire life he treated her and her children tyrannically by all other accounts. Well, I bet he didn't understand love. 
No. He doesn't understand caring. I mean, care for him was his mother telling him to get away. Yeah. And and he did look at his family as assets and they were little pawns for him. He he didn't look at them as like individuals. They were, how will they work within my business? Yeah. How will they serve me in some way? So I think, you know, he showed signs of his own version of love to them at certain points, but he didn't know how that worked. But who knows how or why she, I think it was probably a little bit of she was raised in a time when women just had to be sweet and had nice. to be loyal to men. Um, so all I know is that they ended up together and they married in 1945 and that she, even after his death, refused to do almost anything but pronounce her deep and unwavering love for him even though he was such a bastard. Well, she probably had a certain life herself where it was like her father might have treated her like that too. Well, and it's hard to say too because she was so, you know, at 23, that's you're still just growing up. But back then that was, you should have been married by then. Yeah, you're. my mother got, she had her first child at 22. And yeah. she told me that at that time people were like, well, you better start having kids because yeah. you're an old maid. I imagine Elizabeth or Betty, I'll be calling her for the rest of the time, but I'm sure Betty also felt at 23 she was getting a little worried. Yeah, in the 40s? Yeah. Yeah, that's very early on. So yeah. she, had to have, she had to stick with him. She, he's all she's got. And at the time, he was very handsome and strapping and and charming of course in this world you have to have a level of superficial charm and he did he just swept her off her feet and she absolutely fell head over heels for him which makes sense he was playing that part but he very quickly it wasn't that anymore but she wouldn't ever see anything but when the first man she met you know the man that she saw in him at first so even though maxwell felt a strong connection to his jewish faith throughout his life he married this christian woman Maybe in part because he was not still prepared possibly to be open about his Jewishness. Um, regardless of how low he spoke of his wife, she spent large swatches of her life tracing his family lineage and documenting the family tree and who was taken by Nazis. And she also gave speeches regarding interfaith dialogue. And she organized a conference titled Remembering for the Future regarding Christian-Jewish relations. So she was like really enmeshed in his past and and cared very much for his life and he just did not give a shit about her no. most of the time well, she he was probably like, seeks like love as a weakness yeah and, and he also would constantly admonish her for not loving him enough or not loving him the right way even though all she did was everything she did was for him all the time but she also yeah i mean i'm whatever <laughs> I'm not even going to start getting into my fucking armchair shit with this because I've read her autobiography, too. There's a lot going on. So Maxwell's business dealings are incredibly complex. And in my opinion, like pretty boring. Well, boring uh, stuff is when usually a lot of shit happens. Usually like, you know, when I turn on not CNN, but the one where they're like in the parliament sort of like, and then this law has mm-hmm. that bah, 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 bah. It's usually like 10 pages in. It's like, oh, you're going to kill people unless they behave this way. Yeah. And it's also, yeah, it's that. And it's the other side of it where it's just a bunch of guys bristling in a room going like, rah, 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 and then shaking hands and then stealing money and then borrowing money on borrowed money and then embezzling yeah. money and then uh paying back money a little bit and then getting into a screaming fight with a man and they're just all furious and smoking cigars. Um, so there's a lot of that. And then suffice to say, over the next couple of decades, he gains a lot of money and power, some of which is pretty shady. There are literal full books about it. I've read about three of them. And I ain't going to lie. I don't care that much about all the uh, intermittent stuff that he did. He did a lot of bad stuff with bad people. He did some normal businesses, but a lot of it was based around owning all of these papers. Um, and so he, the very, very bridge version is that after the war, he invested in publishing through connections he made being a pretty cool dude in the war, meeting a lot of people, and he made a really big name for himself in the publishing world. He goes on to buy up as many papers as he can. Throughout this time, he has big successes, big failures, and then begins the process of borrowing money on borrowing money, like I said. The guy is a super weirdo, and he's really gross on top of it, mm. uh, apparently. While he'll come up more in this series, explaining him would take an entirely different episode on a different podcast about 
weird businessmen. Actually, I think Cena's show Fraudster should totally do an episode yeah. on him. Businessmen are weird, and there's always like a shadow self to them. There's they always like go in the office and rah, 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 my way, my way. And then on their lunch break, they'll go visit a dominatrix and then just get beat up. Yeah, he had a lot of those sort of things, maybe not in that exact order, but definitely in those along that world. But he was very repulsive in a, in a lot of hygienic ways and stuff. And we'll we'll kind of touch on those things. But yeah. I've known a couple of very, very intelligent people who like just don't like to bathe. Yeah. Like, yeah. They, I don't know what it is, but yeah. they're just like, I, I don't like bathing. Like I, a Steve Bannon type. Yeah. <laughs> they don't brush their hair. Yeah. It's, just, it's, it's like beneath them yeah. or something. Totally. I think actually Epstein was very similar to that. So that also is another weird connection uh, to all that. He didn't like grooming or anything. No. And he's like, and they're always like, I, I like my pheromones. And I'm like, it's not pheromones. It's like stank. Like yeah, put some deodorant like, on. You just got bugs on you. So- after all that, we'll, we get to the family portion of it here. Even though they were married in 1945, Robert was still doing um, war things. Mm. He was still involved in the military. Um, so they really only spent the first two months together before he was off again. And they communicated solely through letters for another year, the way most couples did during that time period and during the wars. You know, a lot of women barely knew their husbands whenever they went off to fight. But even through that, in the, a year into their marriage, they were already having these dramatic bickering sessions via letter. I know this because Betty put so much of their correspondences into her book. He was already accusing her of being selfish and not loving him enough. And she was already making these like, histrionic, passive aggressive apologies in these letters. And this would continue on for the entirety of their marriage. Oh, just like growing up in that, just bickering and fighting and very dramatic fights too it wasn't mm. like like it was it was it reminded me of my youngest when I was in a relationship when I was like 19 20 with this like really awful older guy who was really mean and I would just like like oh why yeah which he, I, I should have been but also eventually you got to take care of your own shit and realize that you can't just cry your way into this guy being a nice person no too. you can't and that's another thing with quarantine is me realizing like i like peace and quiet yeah because a lot of my childhood was very chaotic so then when mm -hmm. i grew up i would like gravitate towards very chaotic people that i always felt like i was stepping around on glass yeah. around them and like oh, i'm sorry yeah for the thrills yeah because that's just what i was used to yeah and then now i'm like oh no i like the silence yeah Maybe I don't have to be uh, constantly jerking my head around to look if there's somebody behind me. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. yeah. So this, again, this would go on for their whole marriage. So anyway, their first son, Michael, arrived and it was 1946. So she, they still got it, you know, got it in, in enough at the beginning to have a baby. She was pregnant very quickly on and then he was gone. So that was 1946. Ghislaine doesn't appear until Christmas Day in 1961. She's so, much younger than everybody, her brothers. She, yeah, she, it was quite a span of having kids. Betty had nine children in all. By the time Ghislaine arrived, they were already very wealthy and living in Oxford. She was, in fact, the baby of the family, which gave her part of her identity within the family and also in her future. But another event marked her for life, undoubtedly. This is from Betty's autobiography. My disappointment at not being with my husband and children that year for Christmas was more than offset by the arrival of a new baby, our youngest daughter, Ghislaine, born on Christmas Day, 1961. Two days later, our eldest son, Michael, was invited to a Christmas dance at a friend's house. On the journey home, the car in which he was a passenger was involved in an accident on the Bicester Road near Oxford, and Michael was all but killed. For the next seven years, after un undergoing brain surgery, he was to be kept alive in a coma in an Oxford hospital. Mm. The bottoms dropped out of our lives. The consequences of such a tragedy were incalculable for us all. Michael was a very good-looking young man in his 16th year, and being the eldest was maturing quickly. He was responsible, gifted, an endearing child in the apple of my eye. I just don't know how one finds the strength to survive such a catastrophe. There are times when all you want is to die yourself. There is no possible consolation for the loss of a child. All those years ago, our whole family was torn apart by grief. I cried so much that I seemed to have exhausted the source of my tears within me and have not been really able to cry since. 
For a whole year, I spent every morning at the hospital. And sometimes I would visit twice a day in the hopes that if I kept talking to him, Michael might wake up from his deep unconscious. But he remained my sleeping prince his last seven years on earth. Seven years. Seven years in a coma. Yeah. But, and she was there most of her time with this child instead of the other kids. Oh my God. And the father, like, you know, Robert, he his whole thing was like, he's tall, he's strapping, he's charismatic, and that's mm-hmm. what got him through life. And a lot of these, like, wealthy people born poor, they can't handle sickness. Yeah. They don't yeah. like it. And also, he was the golden child that, you know, Robert was hoping for as heir. Predecessor, yeah. So Bob, she goes on to say, Bob was shaken to the very core of his being. He could not believe the fate had dealt him such a cruel blow after all he had already endured. Michael's closest brother, Philip, who worshipped his elder brother, suffered deeply and began a prolonged struggle to accept his loss. Anne, who's the oldest daughter, lost her natural companion and an older brother she adored. Her security was shattered and it would take her years to come to terms with her grief. The twins, their twin daughters in the, the family who are in the middle, clung to each other and allowed no one to penetrate their world. Ian, one of the younger sons, was found playing endlessly with cars, ambulances, little figures in white coats and making blood-spattered drawings. Mm. The two little ones, one is Kevin and the other one is Ghislaine, were seemingly unaware of the tragedy. But Ghislaine, who should have been the center of our love and intention, was hardly given a glance and became anorexic whilst still a toddler. Oh no, and that's how you're growing and your brain goes. One day, aged three, she planted herself in front of me and said simply, Mummy, I exist. I was devastated. And from that day on, we all made a great effort with her, fussing over her so much that she became spoiled. The only one of my children I can truly say that about. So she learned from an early age, the only way to get attention is just to plant yourself and say, I exist. Yeah. And so, yeah, there's a lot, there's a lot to unpack in this one section of Betty's book. Firstly, I'm not really sure how a three-year-old becomes anorexic. Um, If she meant that she stopped eating food, that's horrible. But if she's already has a distorted body image at three, that's pretty horrifying. Mm -hmm. Regardless, eating disorders would plague Glane throughout the rest of her life. That's the only thing you can control. Oh, yeah. Second, Glane was born only days before their cherished eldest son, Michael, went into a coma, he would never leave. And this was only three years after one of the other children, whose name was Kareen, died at age three of leukemia. So I don't know if she ever, if Betty ever consciously felt this way, but I personally believe that after all I've read, that on some level, Betty blames Ghislaine for this event and resented her for the rest of her life. Hey, look at you. Florist by day, student by night. Student by day, nurse by night. Since 1998, Penn State World Campus has led the charge in online education, offering access to more than 175 in-demand programs taught by our expert faculty. We offer flexible schedules, scholarships, and tuition plans to help you reach your educational goals online. Penn State World Campus delivers on your time. Click the ad or visit worldcampus.psu.edu to learn more. That's worldcampus.psu.edu to learn more. Chapter 1, Wayfair welcomes you to the neighborhood. Our hero, Titus Burgess, ambled down the stylish street of an enchanting utopia. A woman waved from a chic lounger. Welcome to the neighborhood," she said, where Wayfair helps everyone create a home they love. Titus stared in awe. Bohemian Boulevard, Trendsetter Terrace, Mid-Century Circle. Titus, hmm? you're reading the Wayfair catalog. Oh, you'll love Chapter 2. Wayfair's fast and free shipping saves a potluck. Wayfair, every style, every home. On her book sleeve. Okay, so the, get this. On Betty's book sleeve, I had to, it's out of print, so I had to find an old copy. So this was a book that when it came out first. So it was when Betty put it out herself. Like it was her, under her direction. On the sleeve, the front picture is a headshot of Betty herself. And on the back is a full-sized photo of her with her family. But it's one without Ghislaine in it. It's a picture of her, her prized son is in the picture along with all of her siblings, but it's before Ghislaine's born. So it's a family picture of everyone in the family except Ghislaine. Wow. And it feels symbolic to me. It seems like she chose to portray that version of her family instead of the one she spent the majority of her time with in her life because she kind of was frozen in that time and longed for it. So Ghislaine probably thought, oh, myself, I myself am nothing. I am trash. 
Yeah. It's all projection, what she did on those little girls. Yeah. Oh, she definitely has absolutely no self-autonomy. She doesn't feel I, – I, I believe that she fully doesn't have any concept of herself at mm-hmm. all. Regarding Ghislaine being spoiled, I think that there is definitely a level of truth to that. But Robert was notoriously cruel to his children. He would berate them in front of guests, quiz them at the dinner table, and if they said the wrong thing, he would humiliate them into tears. I think as the youngest of this brood, she took notice and learned to adapt into the perfect little girl that could win her father over and reduce the number of times that he would belittle her. A lot of those wealthy people that came from nothing, they only respect meanness. He wanted perfection from all of them. Yeah. He expected greatness because he managed to get to this point and he, as his sperms, mm-hmm. they came from his penis. You have to be perfect. Yes. And perhaps in that, there was another reason for Betty to resent Ghislaine. He certainly spent more time with Ghislaine than Betty and Robert came to dote on Ghislaine. He became essentially his favorite um, and often became his travel companion and dinner date. I get a very strong Ivanka connection here. There's a lot of Ivanka vibes, though there isn't any record of Robert overtly sexualizing her the way Ivanka got sexualized, but the pretty obedient daughter who's become a reflection of her father in order to placate him, that's a far more desirable uh, side piece to a powerful guy like that than a wife who... Has wants and needs and opinions. No, he's just putting all of his projections on the daughter. And so then again, she can't be like, oh, no, I am this way. My favorite color is this. What do I want? It's like, what does daddy want? How do I be perfect around daddy? Yes. And that's how you win that affection in that place where you're not being degraded all the time. You just become a a puppet of Mm -hmm. your father, essentially. So he really took to Ghislaine because Ghislaine became what she felt like he needed. And his wife wanted things for herself. Yeah. It's like, ugh, gross. Back to Ghislaine's childhood. Betty talks sparingly about her youngest daughter in her book, but goes on to write in her book about a time in 1964 when Ghislaine's a toddler and she's having a dinner party in which she brings up her troubled daughter to a guest. I should mention here that one of Betty's main responsibilities in this marriage was to entertain the barrage of important people that Robert would invite over to their massive home in England. Yeah, you have to be the trophy wife. Yes. And not only that, she was like the person who ran the house. She ran the servants. She had to prepare things. She had to make sure everything was like, she had all these different jobs. She was basically an employee of his, but the wages were you got to live in a mansion. So their home is called Headington Hill Hall. And it was this massive place where there would just be like diplomats and politicians and celebrities would come in all the time. And uh, she would have to prepare the house perfectly for Robert when he would show up either with these people or even just without him there and the people were there. And sometimes, often it was just he would be showing up and he would call the home sometimes an hour before and be like, I'm arriving today. And then people would be running everywhere. Do you oh ever see God. that scene in Devil Wears Prada? Do you ever see Devil Wears Prada? Yes, and they all have to prepare everything. Well, it's, he's... It's like that. <laughs> yeah, his whole life was a show. I mean, yeah. he's like done different names his whole life. Mm-hmm. He probably doesn't even have a connection with his shadow self or like no, what probably he not. wants. No. Not at all. So everything has to be prepared and put perfectly in place. Yeah. And he would. He was known to, if he saw something out of place or saw a person leaning, he would fire them oh um, as he walked in. So if these parties or his homecomings weren't up to his standard, he would fly into literal rages. But anyway, at one of these get-togethers that Betty was hosting, she writes in her book, she's speaking to an Italian chemist named Professor Daniel Bova, Bove, Bovet, hmm. about her daughter. So at first we talked about our families and I confided my worries about my youngest daughter, Ghislaine, who was anorexic. It had probably started as a bid for attention in the days when Michael's plight had preoccupied us almost exclusively. But by now, it was a matter of serious concern. Daniel told me, you must treat her just like I treat my rats. Puzzled, I queried his comment, and he told me about his scientific experiments with 24 genetically similar white laboratory rats, how he had fed 12 of them regularly each day, according to the accepted standard diet for rats, a certain amount of grain, cheese, nuts, and so on, whilst the remaining 12 received their entire week's food supply in one go. 
And the first week of the experiment, the rats, which had a free choice, had rushed towards the nuts and eaten them all, then headed for another food and done the same, then another, then another. By the second week, however, he had noticed they'd started rationing themselves quite wisely. So much of this and so much of that. At the end of the six-week experiment, those rats were all thriving, whilst the regular fed group was not doing as well. What was needed, he suggested, was a complete change of her environment, especially in connection with mealtimes and anyone normally involved in feeding her. I was not to lay her place at a table and to let her eat whatever and whatever she wanted. As we were about to go on a cruise and Marion, who I believe is a nanny, was setting off for her annual holiday in Ireland, it was a perfect time to try it. I followed his advice to the letter. But remember looking at Ghislaine in disbelief as one day she stuffed herself with chocolate and on the next with so many peaches I was certain she would get diarrhea. Then this went on for a whole week, just as with the rats. After that, she began to roam around the table at mealtimes, picking off our plates, a chip here, a salad leaf, or a piece of meat there. Then one day she asked me why she wasn't eating at the table with the family, to which I replied that it was impossible because she didn't eat like the rest of us. But I want to eat like you, she howled. By the very next day, she was seated at the end of the table asking to be served with exactly the same food as us. From then on, we never looked back. I remain eternally grateful for my good friend's advice, and Ghislaine loves to tell the story of how she was coaxed back to health after being treated like the experimental rats of a famous professor. Wonderful. What a fun story. Just no self-awareness of how fucked up that is. Yeah. So this truly is one of the handful of only the handful of times that Betty mentions Ghislaine and definitely the longest section about Ghislaine in the book. To compare and contrast how she spoke of her son, Michael, the golden child, the perfect, so intelligent kind, and how she regards Ghislaine essentially similar to a rat uh, is pretty stark. I think it's a lack of self-awareness in that way. Like you just, I think in the back of her brain, she just never saw Ghislaine as equal to her older kids. But what usually happens is the golden child, the one that was pampered and like, you're going to be the best, they usually end up messed up in a coma, in prison. And then the kid that's the rat, the runt of the family, ends up becoming the president. Yeah, (laughs) I know, right? Or the best child trafficker the world's ever seen. Yeah. That was an experiment I had like growing up with a lot of the dogs because uh, we would have these dogs that were like outside dogs. And I would notice that the, the because there's always an alpha and a runt. Yeah. And the alpha, the one that got fed first, that was loved the most by the parents, it usually wound up dead first because it had this sense of like love and security and like nothing could hurt me. So of course it got eaten by an owl, eaten by a wolf, <laughs> like immediately. And the runt of the litter that had to fight for the nipple yeah, yeah. grew up to be the king of the pack. It's true. You you do sometimes do better off when you're the runt for sure. I agree. And, and it's also easier, I think, to put a kid on a pedestal who passed away before he could do something bad. <laughs> Yeah. yeah. Um, but yeah, so she, I don't think it was intentional that she spoke about them in these different ways. I think it came out through her psyche without her realizing it. But yeah. I do, it's striking to me that those are the two different ways she spoke of her kids. Also, psychology is pretty new. Like people are yeah. only recently talking about their feelings. And even today, like a lot of people, they just, they are not comfortable with doing so. Yeah, exactly. This is all newer stuff than they were. She was never afforded the availability of having this sort of mental health assessment. Not yeah. that I'm like giving a, I'm giving like an actual medical assessment by any stretch, but this is just what my I'm taking from it. And as I mentioned though, Gillian had figured out how to appease her father more than most of the kids. And beyond that, the children wanted for nothing. They had their every need taken care of and were whisked around the world at the level of royalty. Except for love. Yeah, exactly. So they had all these other things. But, and even so, Robert was incredibly incredibly hard on the children, debatably abusive. He essentially, like I mentioned before, he would interrogate the kids and sometimes he would physically beat them too. And it would be in front of guests. It would be in front of their friends they brought over. He didn't care. And back in the day, like I'm sure people didn't think of that as abuse. They Later on, some of these people came out and talked about how uncomfortable they were, but you weren't, it wasn't a thing that you could just say something about at the time you just had to go like yeah um so yeah there was a lot of tears a lot of pain um the kids definitely had very mixed relationships with their father some of them disappeared like the eldest son philip he 
like ran away from the family. And I think he lives in like South America now and doesn't have anything to do with them. So they, there's a lot of that stuff going on. There are endless tales actually of his cruelty toward his children. Betty herself giving many examples in her book and then discussing how she would have to interject and then he would explode at her and blame her for dividing the family. And then she would go on to explain that he did a nice thing for everyone afterwards, so it's fine. That's usually um, abusive. It's yeah, like, it's he yelled at me, but he said he's sorry. Yeah, and then he got me flowers and it's fine. Another thing rich people do, also poor people, they have an abundance of children because usually someone's going to be, you know, dying. Someone's mm-hmm. going to disobey the family and you might have one or two kids that'll continue the family business. Totally. And I do, I think sometimes it's also like an ego thing almost where you have all these kids and they all dress really well and they all go into private schools and you go, look, look who I'm living. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and then the doors close and it's like, sit up straight. Yeah. And everybody's crying in their own rooms respectively. Yeah. <laughs> so some examples of how he would play mind games with his family was even after they were growing up, he would refuse to attend the weddings or even cut off children for years if he didn't personally approve of their spouses or partners. Yeah. He expected to give full approval. And it seemed like inconsistent and sporadic about who he liked and who he didn't. So there were weddings he just completely didn't go to, refused to be a part of. And then he didn't talk to some of his kids for years at a time because of something he didn't like. One of his sons he brought into the business, he missed a flight to go meet his father somewhere and he fired him and cut him off for like two years because he missed a plane. Yeah, but cold. But, you know, the father, like when he was poor and 15 and alone, he couldn't have missed a plane. Right. Yeah. And that's his mindset, I'm sure. So or here's another one. It Sometimes it was just cruel for the sake of cruelty. So when his daughter, Anne, who was pursuing acting and she had some she moderate success with it, but it wasn't going. He, he She wasn't the top star. So to him, it was a failure. Yeah. He said to her. What have you and Pope John Paul II got in common? You're both ugly and you're both failed actors. Good Lord. Uh, yeah, I can see why his kids would cut him off. Why so, I would live in South America, too, if that was my dad. Yeah, yeah, I know. And his that son also, he got he became a scientist, so he completely removed himself from the business and everything. But so many of the other kids were intertwined with the business that they could never really leave. They could have, but they just chose to stay. But Glenn is not as mentioned as much in these attacks because of the aforementioned self-conditioning she did to avoid this a lot of the time. He, she still got some of it, but not nearly as much as anybody else. So in the late 60s and early 70s, as she's growing up, Robert is in one of his many financial issues, and it took an even bigger toll on his temper and by extension, the emotions of his family. So this was a time when... Uh, business that he had, a publishing business he had started, had a bunch of financial problems, mostly because of his own dealings. Yeah. And he can't admit that he did something himself wrong. Yeah. And he got cut out, I believe, at the time for a period. He got the business back, but at the time he was cut out for something and he was just like furious about it. And so everybody was miserable in the house. And Betty goes on to write, as for little Galange, although she could not really understand what was happening, she did start seeking attention by behaving badly at school and letting her work deteriorate. Her headmistress, although a distinguished philosopher, had a poor understanding of the psychology of small children. Her conclusion was that Galene was not very bright, and because she was also a disruptive influence, she recommended we remove her from the school and enlist the help of a psychotherapist. I promptly took Galene to a specialist in Oxford who conducted a series of tests leading to a very different verdict. The child, he told us, was highly intelligent and was clearly giving poor results because she was in the wrong type of school. What she needed was a complete change of school environment, preferably a boarding school, so that she would be away from home. Bob and I decided to follow the specialist advice. I looked around for a school where I felt Glenn would thrive and eventually chose a mixed prep school in Somerset, which had an excellent reputation and catered to individual talents. She was happy there and her behavior changed almost overnight, although it took her longer to improve her academic standards. In the end, however, she graduated successfully from university like all of her brothers and sisters. She did graduate from Oxford. It's probably for the best that she was away from her family, to be honest. Yeah. So, okay. I don't really know what's going on in this this little bit of her life. The first authority, that, or the headmistress, said she needed a psychotherapist. And then she, her mom goes out and gets a second opinion and they say kind of conveniently that she needs to leave the house. She needs to go. Yeah. Which maybe is the reason why she also trafficked young girls. Maybe this was like some of the best times of her life. And she's like, oh, these young girls, 
in the back of her mind is like, let's get them away from their family and parents. I myself had the best time in my life away from my family and parents at the school. So let's get them away from theirs on this island. Yeah. And I, yeah, I think that could totally be there and as, a, as a justification. I'm sure she didn't actually think that was true, but I I believe that could totally be a, a something she was convincing herself of yeah. when she wasn't doing all this stuff. And so, yeah, the, the psychotherapist thing, it, it could be completely true that she got a second opinion and that that headmistress was just totally off kilter about it. It's just a very bizarre coincidence that this daughter that she doesn't really connect with, who is acting out so much, the solution is that she needs to go away somewhere else where she doesn't have to deal with That's usually kid. the problem of like wealthy people. It's like, send them away. Yeah. I wish there was a way for us to know what entirely was happening during that time. I don't know if we're ever going to be able to find out unless somebody from Ghislaine's school wants to come forward to talk about it. If anybody out there went to school with Ghislaine. Um, But regardless, Ghislaine was shipped off to boarding school at that point. And she was, I think, only about 10 or so at this time. That's so young. She's away from the family unit. This is where she's, you know, finding herself at a young age, 10. So this is like a huge part of her life. It is. And it, it was the time... We're probably going to end up here today and, and continue next week, but this was the time when she was honing her skills of manipulation, probably her skills of self-soothing, um, being able to function without parents uh, around. And when she came home, it really was more of a, it seems more of a show of how to please her dad whenever she came home yeah. or how how to, how to get survive in her house more than how to thrive in her house. Yeah. And, you know, from an early age, she had to learn, like, yeah, please, daddy, I have to be perfect at all times. Yeah. And, and just to appease to the things that she knew would soothe him. So even though I can feel sorry for, even though I, the woman became trash, I can feel sorry for the child she was. And I do, to an extent, feel sorry for her in that way. The child of her, not the adult of no. her. I do not feel sorry for the adult of her. So we'll we'll end up here and we'll we'll pick up next week where she's growing up into her teen years. Where um, everybody's great. Nightmare. Everybody has a great teen years. So thank you for joining me, Amber. This is I think this is a really fascinating episode. Yeah, I just I, I've been reading this for so long and I do I'm just sort of obsessed with the whole story. And I just it helps me cope with the things that she's done a little bit. Yeah, because nobody just like owns a sex trafficking ring overnight. Mm-mm. There's there's steps to this. There's a childhood. There's conditioning done. Yeah, you have to be a sex trafficking entrepreneur to get there. So yeah, thank you guys for joining us this week. Um, if you guys ever have any episodes you might want to hear or some tips from anything we've talked about, you can always send that to someplace underneath at gmail.com. And you can follow us at someplace underneath on Instagram and TikTok. And I'm at the Natty Jean, Amber. Amber Smelson, S-M-E-L-S-O-N. But you don't smell. You always smell very nice. Thank you. My name is Amber Nelson and my middle name is Sophia. There's a lot of Amber Nelsons. So early on in my comedy thing, one of my, Eric Drysdale, he said, hey, Amber Smelson. And that was my nickname. So I just put that as my social media. It's cute and I like it. Um, Yeah, so follow Amber, and uh, we will catch you next time, guys. Bye. This show is made possible by listeners like you. Thanks to our ad sponsors. You can support our shows by supporting them. For more shows like the one you just listened to, go to lastpodcastnetwork.com. Hey, look at you. Florist by day, student by night. Student by day, nurse by night. Since 1998, Penn State World Campus has led the charge in online education, offering access to more than 175 in-demand programs taught by our expert faculty. We offer flexible schedules, scholarships, and tuition plans to help you reach your educational goals online. Penn State World Campus delivers on your time. Click the ad or visit worldcampus.psu.edu to learn more. That's worldcampus.psu.edu to learn more. Chapter 1, Wayfair welcomes you to the neighborhood. Our hero, Titus Burgess, ambled down the stylish street of an enchanting utopia. A woman waved from a chic lounger. Welcome to the neighborhood," she said, where Wayfair helps everyone create a home they love. Titus stared in awe. Bohemian Boulevard, Trendsetter Terrace, Mid-Century Circle. Titus, hmm? you're reading the Wayfair catalog.
Oh, you'll love Chapter 2. Wayfair's fast and free shipping saves a potluck. Wayfair, every style, every home.